Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29, a podcast where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here today with Eric Walden. Who covers the Jazz for the Salt Lake Tribune? I hope I got that right. I didn't do my homework on that aspect of it. You did not put City in there, so you did great. All right. I was nervous. You had me nervous there when you said that. No. Every, nine, nine times out of ten when I talk to someone, they introduced me as being from the Salt Lake City Tribune. And, you know, we decided we liked the lake better than the city or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was like 40 years old when I found out that Tampa Bay was not a real city because, <laughs> you know, you learn from sports and never actually go there. You you start to believe these things. Right. All right. So uh, I guess my first question for you, Eric, is just sort of basic fact keeping on the record. Like w- what sorts of years did you overlap with with Quinn Snyder or did you actually cover his his entire tenure there in Utah? No, I wasn't there for all of it. This is my fifth season covering the Jazz, so I was there for the latter half of of Quinn's Jazz tenure, which spanned eight years. Okay, and I guess it's sort of notable seeing that uh, I think it's part of the structure that got him hired. You were there for when, when Kyle Korver was in Utah? Yeah, I was there for uh, Kyle's second run with the Jazz. Um, Kyle is someone who's like incredibly well respected by the Jazz, and someone who, yeah, you know, I, I saw Quinn's news conference with you guys, and he referenced his his long standing history with Kyle. They definitely were close during that time. You know, um, Kyle was a very kind of respected voice in the locker room on a wide variety of subjects. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that he and Quinn have remained close over the years and um, that there's, there's an ongoing relationship there. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle was here when I started and uh, I think I took it for granted, like that there would always be this person who was wonderful with the media and say interesting things and never shy away from it. (laughs) And then he was gone and it was like, Oh, I guess not every locker room has a Kyle Korver for, for your access to the media. But uh, I guess, you know, being completely selfish like I am, uh, I would ask you first, you know, how is it working with uh, Quinn in the media? Is, is he good to his media members or is he stingy with the quotes or is he boring? Is he exciting? What are we, what are we working with here? Quinn's an interesting media guy. Uh, he's, he's not stingy. The problem is he tends to, you know, use that Duke law degree ad nauseum. <laughs> so it's like he'll be he'll be halfway through an answer and then all of a sudden realize, ooh, I don't know if this is 
how I want it to be on the record. And so he'll start to backtrack. He'll start to deviate. He'll start to sidewind. And the next thing you know, you're like trying to transcribe this quote and you're like, where did this thing go? Uh, so he gives, you know, he he's willing to speak with the media. He does it frequently. He, he does it for extended periods of time. Um, he has this great tendency of talking a lot and not necessarily saying all that much. Um, but it was mostly a positive relationship. You know, there, there were times where he would get like, you know, really kind of aggravated by certain narratives surrounding the team. Like, uh, there was the infamous example last year of, um, his 19 minute pregame speech, uh, which you've been around long enough. You know, that 19 (laughs) minutes pregame is, uh, quite the aberration but um basically the jazz had been going through this stretch of blowing double digit leads like they led the nba by a wide margin and so he kind of infamously came out to try to take down the narrative and and lecture us on using statistics responsibly (laughs) um the problem was like he'd brought a stat sheet with him that was full of incorrect stats. <laughs> the next day when, you know, I forget if it was exactly the next day or, or whenever the next game was, he came out for his next pregame media session and uh, he had a very kind of sheepish look on his face. And he's like, I guess it was kind of ironic that I was lecturing you guys about using statistics, uh, you know, correctly. And then I backed up my argument with a bunch of incorrect statistics. So <laughs> He at least he at least took responsibility for that. But um, yeah, he's he's a very, you know, genial guy. Um, Me and the other beat writers here have been talking about Quinn lately, just kind of reminiscing like he's a very intense guy. And and, but he has this like kind of gravitas that like draws you to him to where like you want to be liked by him, you know, so it's it's this very (laughs) weird phenomenon. I should share for our listeners, I guess, a couple of things. One one was uh, somebody asked Quinn last night. They're like, I have two questions for you, Quinn. The first one is, how much did you sleep last night? And his answer was, okay, what's your second question? Um, and and I vaguely, re- I was going to ask you about that statistics uh, lecture, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> since, it went 19, since it went 19 minutes, I, I have to call. I'm pretty sure that there's no way I listened to the entire thing. Uh, but I do remember hearing some parts of it and I, I do this basketball thing about halftime and the other half of the time I'm teaching math and statistics. And so I remember hearing portions of that and being like, Ooh, that's, that's cringy. Like that. I don't, I don't know if I could work with him because that's going to offend me on a statistical level. Was, was there something about uh, Donovan doesn't throw passes to Rudy in that? Yeah, there, there was that component too. Like, that was the bizarre portion of it, right? Because that wasn't something that the local media had been fixated on at all, right? Like, we knew there had been issues between Donovan and Rudy over the course of their time together. But that whole thing stemmed from a clutch points graphic, right? Like, <laughs> you're fa- you're familiar with these clutch yes. point graphics, right? Yep. They put this thing out basically saying that... Um, I think I think the counterexample used was um involved some of your Hawks players like Trey Young has 
2.4 assists to Clint Capella per game. Donovan Mitchell throws 2.3 passes <laughs> to Rudy Gobert per game or some, you know, I don't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was something along those lines. And yeah, that became part of this, like uh, part of, part of Quinn's monologue where, you know, t- trying to, trying to take that down and we're like, we weren't even talking about that. Right. Like we weren't even, like, we knew their, <laughs> their on court thing, but he decided to make that a point and, you know, we're like, okay, dude. Like, if you if you need to get that off your chest, like, go for it. But we all just thought that was so bizarre. Yeah, I I remember like my vague recollection is like he made some good points about like okay, the pick and roll would be Conley Gobert, not necessarily Mitchell Gobert. But then well, there was some, or or no no, I in some cases right like the Jazz had even though Mike Conley was technically the the quote unquote point guard <laughs> they really had a, a system here where either Conley or Donovan could be the guy bringing the ball up the floor and initiating the offense um so yeah the the stats that he were he was using uh really had to do with um lineups that included all three of those guys gobert and mitchell and conley and that's why they weren't applicable to the situation we were just so that was like yet another example of like statistics he was using to make his case that were actually factually wrong Uh, but you know like whatever the the best part of that was like towards the end when he's like you know what sometimes i go in the team facility and those guys are eating lunch at the same table. So, <laughs> like, well, why did we waste our time with all this number stuff? Like, you should have just brought that up at the beat. That, like, that solves everything. Okay. Um, there, there's a couple of segues I think we could use here, but maybe we'll do this one first since, it, you know, and, and they're both relevant. But I guess the first one is what sort of relationships did he have with his star players? Because I think that's a significant issue here going forward like it, it's not like it's an unsalvageable thing but it you know it certainly would matter that uh he would have a good relationship with some of the stars who are in place here yeah i th- i think he really did have a great relationship with both donovan and rudy uh both of those guys really kind of gave him a lot of credit for putting them in a place to succeed right like um Rudy Gobert especially, right? Like, you look at his history, and I know that at this point, like, the resume, you know, speaks for itself. Three-time All-Star, four-time All-NBA, three-time Defensive Player of the Year. And you're thinking, okay, this is a this is a guy who came in the league and just, like, was dominating from day one. Um, he played a handful of games his first season. He was he was behind, you know, Ennis Cantor his first season. Like, he was a skinny, <laughs> skinny kid out of France who spent, you know, time with the Bakersfield jam of the D-League, right? Because he he had no idea how to play in an NBA game at that point other than being seven foot one and having a really long wingspan. So it really was the development that he got from Quinn and his staff, uh, especially his lead assistant, Alex Jensen, who who's worked with the big men over the course of his time here, um, that, that really kind of helped Rudy grow uh in in terms of Donovan yeah Quinn Quinn saw some talent there obviously you know people forget that Donovan was drafted by the Jazz as a defender right like they envisioned him as an Avery Bradley type 
initially coming out of Louisville. Okay. And the workout he had here is apparently legendary where he showed off, you know, the athleticism and some playmaking, like way more than what they realized he had just from his time spent under Rick Pitino. But um, yeah, his work with Quinn and with uh, Johnny Bryant, who was the lead assistant here at the time and who's now working for Tom Thibodeau and the Knicks um, really kind of got Donovan going and, and, Donovan appreciates Quinn to this day for his decision to kind of hand him the reins, right? So Donovan's rookie season, it was expected to be a really bad season for the Jazz. They had, they had been on the come up. They'd been making incremental progress. They'd finally made the playoffs. And then Gordon Hayward took off to Boston as a free agent. And it was all supposed to have fallen apart immediately, right? This was going to be a team uh, contending for a top pick in, in the lottery, and all of a sudden, Donovan Mitchell, you know, I think he came off the bench for maybe like the first seven or eight games of the season. And then Rodney Hood got hurt and Donovan, you know, replaced him in the starting lineup and just never left, um, you know, and, and it became apparent he was not going to. And Rodney Hood asked for a trade midseason because his role was gone. <laughs> right. So Donovan and, and Rudy both have a ton of respect for Quinn. Um I would say if any of those relationships change over the years, it was maybe Donovan a little bit, just because if anything, Quinn perhaps trusted him too much and, and gave him a little too much freedom. And that kind of created a little bit of drama at times. So um, in terms of how that'll translate to, uh, to Quinn and say Trey young, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how, how that relationship goes from afar. Yeah, it's like, it, 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 you know, from the way you describe it, it definitely sounds like a different sort of thing because he was catching them from the get-go or, in Rudy's case, from, you know, his second season, I think it would have been, if I'm, if I'm yeah, getting it right. He, he did play, like, here right. and there his rookie season. But, but yeah, technically, he, yeah, his second NBA season, right? Right, yep. Yeah, and so Trey is in his fifth NBA season, if I'm counting right. And so it's just a, you know, it's a slightly different beast there when you're when you're catching him later in life yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see um yeah what habits quinn is able to kind of get him to like take a look at and say this is not ideal for the success of the team and we need you to rein it in here conversely quinn is very good about you know freeing guys up to do their thing if it helps the team so um He's been very adaptable during his time in Utah. Like there were seasons where, you know, they were employing a, a too big lineup with Gobert and Derek Favors and they had Ricky Rubio as the point guard. And so obviously you look at that group and you're like, okay, not a ton of three point shooting. So they're going to slow the pace down. They're going to be very defensive oriented. And they were a top five defensive team in the league. Uh, they quickly realized that was not enough firepower to go up against the James Harden-led Rockets and the Steph Curry-led Warriors. So all of a sudden you import Mike Conley and Boyan Bogdanovich, and next thing you know, they're setting NBA records for three-point attempts, right? So he's very adaptable to the personnel, and and he's very good at getting them to realize, okay, it behooves not only the team, but myself individually to play the way that he suggests because, you know, uh, my numbers will like really escalate and oh also like we'll win a lot more games that way so um 
yeah, if he can get if he can get Trey at this stage of his career to buy in, um, the Hawks have a lot of potential to to maybe do some damage. And Trey's, you know, like I'm sure it aggravated him that he wasn't an All Star this year, right? <laughs> I, I, right. Quinn is probably telling him, I can get you back there and make it so it's not even a question of whether you belong or not. So we'll see if we'll see if uh, Trey Young buys into that or not. You, you, you're like anticipating my questions here. <laughs> you're, you're good. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about, I think it was a 2018 playoff series uh, between the Rockets and the Jazz because it had Clint Capella in it for one, who's obviously a Hawk now. And there was like a split where it seemed like Favors started three games and Jay Crowder started two. There was yeah. a sort of a mid-series switch. Yeah. And they all played all five games. And I'm wondering, you know, because it's, I think it's applicable to the Hawks because the thing that they've got to figure, one of the things they've got to figure out going forward is, you know, what do we do with John Collins? Because he's not shooting threes particularly well. So, in effect, you know, the Hawks are playing two bigs and they get that effect of uh, having two bigs because the bet, the thing that they have done best this season is that you know that starting unit with Collins and Capella and Trey Young that's been a really great lineup for them and and Collins has covered and of course Capella too but Collins in particular has has covered for Trey Young a lot those are really good defensive lineups even though they have Trey Young in them and so I'm just wondering like did he shift out of that out of necessity or is he just kind of see the writing on the wall from a basketball philosophy point like how how did he go in and out of that two big lineup? But do you think he would ever go back to it if the circumstances were right for it? Yeah, I think he would. I think the reason he went out of it that series was just realizing that um, with Derek Favors in there alongside Rudy Gobert, they just didn't have nearly enough scoring and shooting and floor spacing to make the offense work at any level where they could compete with you know James Harden and and his cohorts. Um, and so the thinking in that series was, all right, let's let's bring Derek off the bench. Let's put Jay in the starting lineup. And not that Jay Crowder is this incredible three-point shooter, but um, he does bring the gravity and the floor spacing at least, right? He's, a, he's at least enough of a threat that you have to honor his ability to shoot and, and come out a couple extra feet to guard him. And the thinking was, okay, maybe this will open up the floor a little bit more for Donovan to drive and kick or for Ricky Rubio to get into the lane and to then find a shooter in the corner or something like that. Um, Derek, to his credit, like the next season came in and and told us, you know, we asked him, hey, what, what were you working on over the summer? And he said, my three-point shooting. And I initially thought he was joking, right? Because he said it so glibly. And because the idea of Derek Favors all of a sudden morphing into a three-point shooter was honestly kind of laughable, seems harsh to say, but <laughs> you get where right. I'm going. And and so I was I was like kind of chuckling and he goes, No, I'm I'm dead ass serious. And it became a thing where they'd like try to spot Derek up in the corner, you know, to fire three pointers up. And he took some. You know, I think he I think he converted at about a 22 percent rate. So it wasn't terribly effective. And that kind of hastened, you know, the uh, the demise of that two big lineup eventually. Um, 
but like I said, you know, Quinn is adaptable. I think if he decides that um, the perimeter defense in Atlanta is such that it necessitates having two guys capable of protecting the rim, you know, to kind of backstop that, he'll go with that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily his ideal or his preference, but um, he will adapt to the personnel if if he decides that having both Capella and Collins in there is is the way to go, at least for now. He'll give that a try and and try to make it work. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see John Collins over the summer, you know, come back next training camp and be like, I spent the entire offseason <laughs> working on corner threes. Right. You know? um, and if that doesn't work, then, you know, it might be a thing where, I mean, it's no secret to anyone that that John Collins' name has been on the market for a while now, right? So it might be a thing where Quinn just gets enough of a look at him over the course of, you know, what, 20, 21 games remaining for the Hawks or something at this point and, and decides, okay, we need to do something to change that dynamic because it might just be again, you know, like I think I looked at, I think I looked at it the other day and the Hawks are among the worst teams in the league in terms of three pointers made and three point percentage across the entire league. And Quinn can have teams play that way, but it's not as ideal. Um, Kind of notoriously uh, guys who came to Utah with, uh, a reputation for being great mid-range players were told to adapt their games the last few years, right? Like there were myriad times that Eric Pascal would be like, man, I wish they'd, I wish they'd let me shoot some mid-range shots. Like that's my bread and butter. But instead they were like, Quinn is, is very analytics driven and, and very much feels like, you know, he's not ever going to say don't shoot zero mid-range shots because that's just not practical in the course of an NBA game, right? You can't, realistically take all dunks and layups or three pointers it just doesn't work that way but if he has his preference you'll take as few mid-range shots as possible and he'll say let's work on getting better at three pointers and maximize those long shots if you're going to be taking a 20 footer you may as well make it you know a 23 footer and have it count for an extra point so um it will be interesting to kind of see where he how how quickly he kind of decides what's best lineup wise with that team. Yeah, last night was kind of interesting or ironic or something because you know the Hawks all season long have been a very mid-range heavy, heavy, heavy team. And for some of them, it's not necessarily even like a 20-footer. Like for DeJounte, it's like a 14-footer. Like he'll he'll have like a foot in the paint when he takes a lot of these shots. And the first quarter felt like a lot of that last night. And then you look at the stats at the end of the game and they Hawks got up a ton of threes. The Wizards didn't. And basically they lost the game because Beal just made every 20-footer down the stretch. <laughs> just I think he finished with 37 points and he just he did not miss a 20-footer for the entirety of the game. And so uh, in that sense, the math worked out for the Wizards. If you can, if you can shoot a hundred percent on your twos, well, yeah, and <laughs> and that's going to be if his defensive scheme in Atlanta is is similar to what it was in Utah. That will be a recurring theme because he he very much wants to protect the rim and he very much wants to chase guys off the three point line, and he's willing to live with you know whatever teams get in the mid range because in his mind, that's the least efficient shot. And so 
if you can force guys to take those, you know, and then a Bradley Beal happens to beat you on a, you know, he'll live with that because he'll say, those are the shots that we want opponents to take. And if that's what they're going to beat you on, okay. But we just don't want them getting to the rim with impunity. We don't want them getting open looks on corner threes consistently. And so um, I would expect there to be more of that. And, and he'll probably just be hopeful that, you know, whoever does it next won't be nearly as efficient as a Bradley Beal. Um. Uh, Quinn is coming into a situation here where, uh, you know, it's it's such an odd situation. He comes in with 21 games left in the season, and he gets, you know, a roster in place. He gets an entire assistant coaching staff in place. Are, are there Quinn assistants uh, either in or out of the league who you might suspect would be guys that he wants to rely on at some point as, as his future assistants? That's a good question. Um Igor Kokoshkov uh, is one of Quinn's guys going back to his days at Missouri. So I know that they've got a good relationship. In fact, we were all kind of shocked that after Igor, uh, his his very short tenure as the Suns head coach, came to its premature end. We were, we were shocked that he didn't wind up back with the Jazz um, just because they have such a long history. Um. In terms of the other ones, he he was really close to Johnny Bryant, um, but it, it's maybe hard to see why Johnny would make a lateral move at, at this point. You know, uh, I would anticipate his next move, if he goes anywhere, would be to become a head coach somewhere. Um, Zach Guthrie was a guy who Quinn relied on a lot uh, during his years in Utah. Um, Vince Lagarza was a guy who he he was with in multiple spots. So those are some names that that come to mind right off the top of my head. Um, he did love Alex Jensen, but Alex is a Utah native and um, I think would be loath to go, especially because he has really kind of established himself on, on Will Hardy's staff with this new regime. So those are those are the names that come to mind right off the top of my head, just in terms of guys who I know he's worked with before and and has you know a a really good relationship with. For somebody who starts uh, and has a long tenure, it, it might be a sort of thing that develops over time. You know, Quinn Quinn was in Utah for quite a while, uh, but did he have aspirations? Uh, to either be in management to get some sort of managerial control what what sort of relationship did he have with upper management over the years in terms of personnel decisions yeah that's a good question right so those of us who followed him here in utah we we were actually discussing that last night like okay is did this hawk deal come about so quickly because quinn was able to kind of convince them to give him more say in those personnel decisions um it's interesting here here in utah right because for a while it was dennis Lindsay who was the president of basketball ops and and justin zanuck was either assistant general manager or general manager um then all of a sudden danny ainge came in last year after dennis Lindsay was gone uh 
they very much like to say that it's, you know, it's not one guy making the decision here. It's always everything is 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 a group is a group discussion, right? I don't know that it's really always that way. I I think there were times where Quinn was frustrated by certain draft picks um, that were made, certain free agent signings that were made, like the Yudoka Azubuki one, right? For instance, like Quinn is like, oh, okay, like we have Rudy Gobert, who's a three-time defensive player of the year. <laughs> we just used our entire mid-level exception to bring Derek Favors back as as the backup center. And now we're drafting a seven foot, 280 pound center out of Kansas. Why? <laughs> uh, you know, he, he never understood that one. And, you know, the jazz front office were saying, well, Hey, you know, according to our analytical model, he was like the second best prospect in the entire draft. Clearly that has not <laughs> proven to be the case. And in the meantime, you know, the, the jazz missed out on potentially useful three and D wings, like say uh, Desmond Bain or the, the McDaniels brother who plays in Minnesota. I forget if that's Jaden or Jalen, but whichever it is, they had, a <laughs> they had a shot at him. Right. And, and like, obviously both of those guys have, have clearly turned out to be a lot better and clearly would have been a much better fit with what Quinn was trying to do. And so I think there were times where he felt like he didn't have enough voice and he didn't have enough say in those decisions, even though the jazz front office would, would be quick to counter. Oh, you know, we included Quinn and everything. It's like, well, okay, well maybe you did, but you weren't always necessarily doing what he wanted. And I'm not saying you always should, right? Like there's a reason that most coaches are not general managers also. And, and, Whenever you see that happen, you see that it tends not to work. In fact, right? You need some different dissenting voices going on. So I am curious to see how much say Quinn has in things. I think it's helpful to him that he is such good friends with with Kyle Korver. I think, you know, having an ally in that in that front office room will uh, will be helpful um, in terms of whether he wants to wind up being like general manager or president of basketball ops down the road i wouldn't be shocked right he he definitely has strong opinions on on what kind of players he likes and and what he doesn't and so um your point that you brought up earlier about someone asking how much sleep he got right that's not going to be a thing that's applicable only to this 20 game segment <laughs> where he's trying to get up to speed right that he is notoriously a workaholic He's notoriously burning the midnight oil, trying to come up with ways to to gain an advantage, to find something that works, to find a certain scheme that will put them over the top. Um, and he tends to like not burn himself out, but wear himself down at least to where, you know, take a look at him at the beginning of next season versus when there's 20 games left next season, right? And you'll notice a physical difference in him. He'll be gone. <laughs> he'll he'll start to let the he'll start to not shave quite as frequently, you know, the the hair will get a little more disheveled. Um and so I could see it being a thing where, you know, he does the coaching gig for a few years and then he he maybe starts angling for it to be, you know, to transition into that front office role just because 
if nothing else, that'll give him a chance to get, you know, four hours of sleep a night instead of three or whatever. <laughs> it's interesting how things come full circle because, you know, Corder, Corver and Snyder were here under Budenholzer. The, this ownership group came in place. Bud was president of basketball operations. And, uh, you know, things turned sour when Schlenk came in and, and Bud was no longer president of basketball operations. He goes to Milwaukee where he's sort of a head coach, kind of like Snyder is now, uh, you know, w- w- with sort of a trusted basketball opinion and, you know, probably a decent amount of say-so in the front office. And, and you know, he wins a championship there. Uh, but I, I can't appreciate enough uh, you taking the time to do this, Eric. Uh, it's always very helpful to have a studied perspective of somebody who is doing it daily for, for years and years. And, and it's clearly you have a, a great pulse on, on what went down there in Utah. No, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun kind of revisiting some of the stuff. Um, it'll be fun for you, like getting to know the, the Vin, the, the Quinn, like verbal and physical cues, you know, you'll, you'll start to see him take off his glasses and like, hold them <laughs> between his forefingers. Um, you know, you'll start to see him do the, make a triangle with his, with his two hands. Um, when you get in good with him, you know, he'll, he'll approach you during a media session. He might give you a little shoulder squeeze and then, you know, okay, Quinn's, Quinn's accepting of me now, but uh, just, <laughs> he's got all these funny little, he's got all these funny little things, all these little mannerisms that um, we were, we were all discussing last night and just, Oh, yep. I remember that. I remember that. I remember. That. So, It'll be fun for you to get to know him. He's he is great to work with. Um, his bad stats notwithstanding, he is actually, <laughs> you know, very much an analytics guy. He is very intense. He does uh do a lot of word salads, so you know, be prepared for some some headaches in in transcribing audio. But um, <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be entertaining. I can guarantee you that. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir, and I hope to chat with you again some point down the line. All right. Take care, Kevin. You too.